Welcome to The Brand is Female. I'm Ava Hartling. Every week on The Brand is Female, I speak with women who are leaders, entrepreneurs, change makers, and creators. I believe that by sharing our mutual stories as women, we will find inspiration to unlock our own potential, align with our true path, and make our voices heard. I'm Vanessa Barboni Halleck. I'm the founder and CEO of Another Tomorrow. Another Tomorrow is an end-to-end sustainable luxury brand uh, that encompasses transparency, holistic sustainability, a circular economy, and a platform for education and action. Vanessa made a major career pivot when she decided to leave the world of finance and emerging markets to found her own brand based on sustainability principles. In our conversation today, you'll find out what drove her to make this major change and why she believes companies need to be doing things differently and how she's making it possible at another tomorrow. Before going to my conversation with Vanessa, let's hear a message from our partners. This season of our podcast is brought to you by TD Bank Group, Women Entrepreneurs. TD helps women entrepreneurs achieve success and growth through its program of educational workshops, financing, and mentorship. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and follow the link to find out how TD can support you. So it's a pleasure to have you on The Brand is Female. Thank you for joining me today. It's such a pleasure to be here. And I want to start by asking you the same thing I ask all my guests when we begin these conversations. And I want to know about your journey up to this point, up to founding Another Tomorrow. Uh, And growing up, did you always know you wanted to be a fashion entrepreneur or did you dream of doing something completely different? Oh my gosh, that's such a great question. Um, I think in so many ways, Another Tomorrow really takes my whole life uh, sort of full circle and brings it all together. So I definitely had no idea. um, And if anything, I think I would have said never as a kid because my mother made her own clothes and it was mortifying. It was absolutely (laughs) absolutely mortifying. Um, but no, I mean, I think that, you know, truly the seeds for this company were sown really early in my life. So as you and I have spoken in the past, I, I grew up in this really tiny town in the Midwest. It was a very academic, artistic circle. Um, and I really lived at that sort of intersection of disciplines without ever truly appreciating it. Um, and one of my earliest memories was actually sitting on the floor of my parents' little study, uh, cross-legged with the Whole Earth catalog on my lap, Mm. paging through that. And I I think what that did was instill in me that there were solutions um, to our problems uh, in consumption uh, solutions to our problems through this intersection of uh, science and technology and art in this kind of like tangible form. So one one of the, you know, related memories were these images of these, you know, do-it-yourself geodesic domes that I'll sort of forever, mm. um, forever remember. And then, you know, I, I took a really radically different path, you know, so I grew up in this community and um, I actually thought I would be an architect uh, coming out of high school. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, of problem solving through math and art and, and building. Um, and, I, and I did a really significant shift um, in college, which I think was in many ways, a reaction to my mom dying my freshman year, which is not something that I think I, I really actively understood at the time. Right. Uh, 
But in hindsight, I mean, it was a really radical change from this much more artistic, um, creative path to economics. And then from economics onward, um, you know, into finance um, with a focus on emerging markets. So really from farm town of 3,000 people to, you know, New York City, um, international finance. And mm -hmm. uh, so you could say that the whole path was rather unexpected. Um, mm -hmm. But that was, you know, that was the first part of the chapter. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about the, you know, the actual transition point. Uh, but that was just to say that this was definitely not expected. Well, and tell me about that experience working in finance and focus on emerging markets. And finance is obviously a sector that is uh, largely male driven. So as as a woman in New York City at the epicenter of the financial capital of the world, uh, how what was that experience like? It was wild. I mean, when I first started applying uh, for the jobs, I mean, I think I really thought banks were still tellers, you know, with those little two. Right. <laughs> to pop up, you, know, you did the drive through through the bank. So, you know, that's just to say I was highly, highly unprepared uh, for everything that I encountered. Um, but I, I really, I relished many aspects of it. You know, certainly coming from, uh, you know, a small landlocked environment, but one that really instilled curiosity in me. It was such a remarkable way to learn how, you know, the, the economics, at least, of the world worked, how interconnected we are, to really travel the world. Um, so it was a remarkable, you know, it was a remarkable experience. Um, I definitely had a kind of a love-hate relationship with it that I think grew a little bit more tense over time because as you know, in these careers, you give so much of yourself to it. And other parts of me definitely started to fall by the wayside. It, it felt like I was sort of, you know, missing like limbs of my personality over time. And I really started to crave that sense of, of fullness mm -hmm. um, and that sense of um, putting my energy into something that felt really personally purposeful. Um, but it took me a long time to get to the point of action on that because I was so stubborn. I'm a fairly stubborn person in general. And uh, to be in that, as you said, you know, very male dominant environment, I was just hell-bent on succeeding. That's, right. I don't know how else to, <laughs> to put it. Um, I just was. I wanted to prove it. Um, right. And, and it was when uh, some of those external markers of success actually started to show up and when they didn't deliver the kind of satisfaction that I had maybe anticipated that uh, it was a real wake-up to say, whoa, um, you know, this sense of uh, of satisfaction and success really has to come from within and from creating something that's of really internal internal value. Mm. So, and it's interesting because you talk about that search or that longing for something more wholesome, something more fulfilling, and then you made a jump to fashion, <laughs> <laughs> which is not necessarily the first thing that would come to mind when somebody's looking for that wholesome, you know, fulfillment in their life. <laughs> So really tell me about that. Fashion <laughs> and the wholesomeness don't go together. No, I know it's uh, it's it's so true. Um, you know that was that was another major accident. So the, the path there was, um, you know, it was funny. In, in 2007, I actually did leave uh, my finance career to go do a degree in energy and environmental policy. So okay. I ended up back there with the whole thing. But 
um, I really felt very strongly that um, I wanted the next really kind of 20 years of my life to be about purpose. It sounds mm -hmm. weird to maybe think in those time increments, but I kind of had to, to take myself out of my situation uh, and say, what, what do I want this to be about? Um, and sitting where I was at the time and, and seeing how badly needed it was to realign finance with principles of, you know, the environment and strong mm -hmm. social governance. Um, you know, I saw a huge opportunity actually in sustainable finance. So that's what I thought I was going to do. I thought I was going to shift my focus from emerging markets into sustainable finance and um, ended up taking a sabbatical. Mm -hmm. You know, I was going to do that. And I thought, you know what, before I do this, I should really know a lot more actually at the industry level about how they're manifesting all of these negative externalities, all of these negative con unintended consequences. Um, and, you know, I, we were certainly, my family and I, living a life that I like to think was fairly uh, conscious in terms of, you know, electric car and solar panels, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I knew I had a lot to learn. And so I started to really dig deep industry by industry. And Frankly, most industries, it's pretty clear cut how they screw up the planet. It's, you know, oil and gas, okay, got it. You know, logistics kind of, you know, got, got that. Um, you know, even the food industry, like fairly understandable. But when I got to fashion, I was just blown away by what a hot mess the industry was. It was like the, you know, the, the, the biggest kind of like open secret. I don't know how to characterize it. It was mm -hmm. Um, the magnitude of the impact was enormous. The complexity of the impact was enormous. And I think it really impacted me because in making what I thought were conscious choices, I really hadn't thought that much, frankly, about my choices when it came to fashion. Other right. than, you know, knowing that sort of like, oh, I should really, you know, less is more and you probably don't want to buy fast fashion. Um, I really had almost no appreciation for how deeply impactful uh, the industry was in some of its more nuanced ways. And, uh, you know, the first thing I did was not say, oh my gosh, you know, let me go switch industries. Um, but I thought at least I should put this information into practice in my day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, even on a sabbatical, I found it incredibly, incredibly difficult. I mean, you know, once you actually know what you're looking for, trying to find a product that has sufficient detail against it, you know, when you're going to buy it to actually feel comfortable. And then also finding that product that, you know, aligns with your values. I mean, three hours of research to do a t-shirt that you don't even want to buy at the end of the road, you know, was, was not satisfying. You know, then I went to, okay, I'm not going to buy anything new. I'm only going to buy secondhand. Mm -hmm. And then a pair of shoes showed up, you know, from Australia and then they didn't Fit, and I was like, this is just, this is, this is broken, right? Mm -hmm. The consumer is not going to make a change. So long story short, um, it just became this information that I couldn't unknow. And I saw that in other industries kind of 10 years earlier that had already seen progress, whether that's food or, you know, uh, CPG, beauty, et cetera, um, that there were challenger brands that were a really important part of that industry's journey. Because mm -hmm. they were able to do things from a clean slate um, and model a different set of possibilities that more than through their own supply chains, through shifting consumer norms, mm -hmm. really started to change the behavior of incumbents 
and then often got bought by the incumbents, which is also, you know, kind of a good thing <laughs> from an investment standpoint. Um, right. And ability to drive change. And so, and I just didn't see that, um, that there were many of these companies uh, in fashion. Um, other than, you know, a few of our, you know, pure brands who I really consider to be our North Star. I mean, Patagonia for me is, is, a, is a hugely positive example and one that mm -hmm. we reference um, all the time. Um, so I started to talk to other people to see, you know, prospective consumers, let's say, how they felt about it. And by and large, um, almost everybody was where I was at prior to my research um, in that they felt that it was important to live their values. They were trying to do that um, in aspects where they understood how to do that in their life, but fashion wasn't on their radar screen. And they understood sustainability in fashion through this lens of fewer better things. And so really the pain point for them was access to fewer better things. And the frustration was there was all of this mass product out there um, that was affordable, but not of great quality. Mm -hmm. um, and then you had this like super luxury heirloom product that was what they aspired to buy, but either couldn't afford it or felt increasingly silly buying it at full retail because of these crazy sales cycles. Right. And there's just a missing kind of nexus of price to quality. You know, how mm. do you create these access points um, for customers? And so I thought, okay, um, that's the pain that they're really experiencing. There's so much product in this market that the last thing we need is like another brand that doesn't solve a customer problem, whether it's created sustainably or not. Mm. Um, but I thought, okay, we can, um, we can solve that problem by basically taking a direct-to-consumer approach to luxury and cut the price point just through that by more than half, integrate owned resale and circular economy in our model to create even another price point, you know, so that further democratizes this access to quality, and then build our supply chains according to, you know, holistic set of sustainability and ethics principles and then explain that in a way that brings people on the journey and helps educate them along the way. Um, but knowing that it's going to be a journey in that sort of communication process and wanting to do that in a really inclusive way where it isn't like this guilt laden, you know, fact bashing <laughs> kind of process, because I knew how hard it was to actually try and do it. Right. Um, long story short, you know, that was, um, that was how I convinced myself to start another tomorrow while on my sabbatical. And that's really been, <laughs> you know, the, the foundation um, of the company and the reason why we really sort of have a, this three pronged mission of incredible product, access to information and a platform for action that also helps people live their values without having to actually buy something. So, mm -hmm. and and those are lofty goals. And you were basically a first time fashion entrepreneur having come from a completely different industry. So yeah. tell me about, you know, those first few months getting the business off the ground. Um, did you first put together a business model and then, you know, go about finding suppliers, establishing your supply chain and just hearing you describe how you approached uh, the whole, you know, manufacturing and, and supply channel. Yeah. I can imagine that that wasn't an easy task. No. And, you know, I think that um, it's great that I had no idea how hard it was. <laughs> a bit of naivete usually. Yeah, I think that, you know, many entrepreneurs say that, you know, if they, if they had known, they might not have done it, but they're glad that they did it. So, mm -hmm. 
um, you know, I knew almost nobody in the industry. I knew one person who was my college ex-boyfriend's sister who lived in Paris and who I adore, um, but, you know, and who had just had like her second kid. So she wasn't, she clearly wasn't going to be, you know, the person who showed me the ropes, but um, I got really lucky midway through my sabbatical to be introduced um, to a woman who'd had a really senior uh, marketing job in the industry for a long time. And she basically uh, sat me down and showed me the ropes and helped me understand what it really meant to build a brand foundation, um, introduced me to a ton of people in the industry. You know, it was really like fashion 101 and like brand building 101. And at that point, you know, I was on the sabbatical and honestly, like I hadn't, I wasn't yet convinced that this was for sure um, gonna happen. You know, I had to convince myself first. And so she was the first one uh, that I really kind of brought in to help advise me. Uh, then I brought in two people on the sustainability front to advise me because I said, okay, you know, I've sort of done the research from a very kind of academic perspective, but I lack the practical knowledge of what does this actually mean to build a supply chain? What are the industry's best practices and what are the things to avoid? And so, um, that was a great experience. Uh, both of them ended up joining the company. Uh, one is our current VP of Supply Chain Sustainability and Culture. The other was our first uh, VP of Product. Um, and, and, so and that's a good lesson. Sorry to interrupt you. That's a good lesson in there because you know building that network and asking for help when we first start with a business project always pays off in the in the you know in the long term. And in your case, you basically found your first hires at the same time. So that's fantastic. Oh, totally. And, and I had no choice. I mean, I literally had zero knowledge. And I think that that was one of the biggest growth experiences I've ever had because I was so accustomed to coming from this environment of being a subject matter expert kind of and right. of this idea of being judged on your knowledge base or your competency and your expertise in something highly specific. And so it really threw me outside my comfort zone to know effectively nothing. And I think it was the healthiest thing I've ever done because mm -hmm. I had to really get comfortable with not knowing the answer to anything. Right, right. <laughs> you know? And uh, and that was, I think, such a such a good, such a good experience. So, you know, those were some of the first, you know, the first pieces. Um, and then when hiring a, a designer, I mean, I'm not the designer, I knew I never would be the designer. Mm -hmm. um, I am much more a curator than an artist, um, but I knew that I needed somebody who could be a real thought partner in the design process, who came from deep expertise, because um, goodness knows I have been uh, a supporter of many new fashion brands and the first couple of seasons are rough and mm -hmm. you may not get a second shot. So I really needed to nail it right out the gates, given that we were, you know, the segment that we were going after. Mm -hmm. um, and wanted to find somebody with, you know, open-ended kind of curiosity and the same aesthetic. And so met Jane Chung, our uh, current creative director. That was kind of a dating process for many months. And then after that was in place, you know, we really started to build out the supply chain in earnest. Um, and the first thing that we had to do was, you know, put some stakes in the ground because, you know, sustainability and ethics were the entire reason for existing. And so 
what were those filters going to look like? And, um, you know, I think about it in terms of environmental welfare, human welfare, and animal welfare. And so for us, um, you know, that really came from my personal values as, as the founder, um, as is, you know, generally the case with new businesses. And so, um, you know, I think about sustainability being about, you know, science first, and then ethics and personal values have to come in when there are trade offs, because in many cases, there are trade offs. Um, whether that's you know sourcing the most sustainable material, um, but it happens to be across the world, um, you know how do you think about like that trade-off? Um, many many other things could be you know leather versus um, you know plastic-based leather alternatives. So lots of trade-offs. But in any case, for for us, it was really about um, and the animal welfare piece. It was really clear to me. So we didn't want any animals to be killed uh, for the sake of making this product. Um, I had no appreciation um, that that actually impacted a lot more materials than I thought. I had no idea how silk was made. And so taking silk off the table was like, whoa, okay, that's a big thing. Um, same thing with down. I really didn't have an appreciation before I went into this in terms of like how conventional down um, mm. comes, to, comes to be. Um, in the case of um, human welfare, it was clear everyone had to be paid a living wage in our manufacturing. Um, I thought that was going to be fairly straightforward. Turns out it really wasn't. <laughs> uh, it's a big reason why we manufacture in Europe. Um, and then from an environmental welfare standpoint, that touched so many things um, from the fact that we only use um, organic cotton and linen to um, needing to source um, viscose that came from traceable supply chains that we knew the forests were managed appropriately and, and, and also en encompassed uh, biodiversity um, to not using any virgin cashmere, um, you know, not using uh, synthetics that shed microfibers. It really, really narrowed the universe of fabrics. But um, we still thought, given this, okay, we've narrowed it down to like just these raw materials and just these types of fabrics that surely we could find uh, materials at least that met our um, hand feel and you know really luxury quality parameters mm -hmm. and our values. We found almost nothing. It was insane. <laughs> almost nothing. To, to this day, we have one stock fabric, which is this incredible organic linen that this actually home goods company that have been, have been doing for, you know, decades. Right. Everything else we had to develop custom. Okay. And that was such an incredible experience because um, it actually came from one of our pain points in animal welfare, where once I started to understand the issues around um, the wool industry mm -hmm. and uh, in terms of how the animals are treated when they're alive, the issues of mulesing and tail docking, which you know we could go down that rabbit hole if we want to, um, and also the fact that they tend to be killed at age six or seven instead of living their full natural lifespan. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I did not come to start a sustainable <laughs> fashion company only to support, to support industrialized agricultural practices that I, I can't get on board with. And All so right. that led us to Tasmania. Hmm. Um, to this ethical farming community. And we wanted to buy the wool directly from these farmers. And I learned so much more being there on the ground with these people than I had doing 
any of the academic research, which was really important in getting me to the farm in the first place, that um, it was just such a formative experience in saying, we want this to be the cornerstone of our sourcing process. And how can we apply this idea of having truly farm-based relationships for all of our supply chains? Because fashion, unless it's a synthetic, is an agricultural product. And people just don't tend to think of that. Um, right. And so it was a really, it was a really fascinating experience. And then we had to build the supply chain up from, you know, from that raw material, you know, all the way up through the manufacturing process. And, and I can certainly go into that, but I think I've already given you a fairly long-winded. <laughs> <laughs> this season of our podcast is made possible with the support of TD Bank Group Women Entrepreneurs. Confidently building your business takes sound advice plus guidance to the right connections, tools, and resources. As a woman entrepreneur myself, I know I need all the support I can get. What's great about TD Services for Women in Business is their collaboration-based approach. They work with both internal and external partners that can provide education, financing, mentoring, and community support. TD employees are able to be proactive in the advice and guidance they give to women in business. They can facilitate and connect you to workshops, coaching, or mentorship. And they engage other like-minded business leaders in an authentic way so we can share experiences and learn from each other. And one of my questions was, you know, going to be about your biggest challenge. You've described several. So I think we, we can see that it was it was a, an arduous path. It, it wasn't success wasn't just handed over to you when you when you launched uh, your brand. Um, tell me about what felt like that first moment amidst this series of, you know, teachable moments and learnings. Yeah. Um, that first moment where it felt like this is actually going to work. We have something that you know, that can be a winning uh, business model on our hands? You know, that's, that's such a great question. I, I think it happens, um, it's almost like pattern recognition because um, people just start to invest in you in really small ways. You know, it doesn't mean that, you know, one person writes you this big check, right? <laughs> it's just, you start to notice that people who don't have to help you, help you that people are invested in you personally, they're invested in uh, the future state that you're trying to build. And over time, you kind of have this moment, it's like, huh, you know, none of that was, you know, was guaranteed. And you start to get these like little, little kind of proof points. Um, and over time, you kind of, you know, you, you build sort of a family around this idea, not just of the people who are directly working on it, um, but you know your suppliers and um, your potential customers who you know you're just talking to, having a chat. Um, and so I, I think that that was when you know it really started to come to light. But you don't know until it's out there in the world. I mean, there's such mm -hmm. a huge shift that happens. I think when a product is still in its idea or conceptual stage versus having it, having it out there um, in the market. Mm -hmm. And speaking of having it out there in the market, um, I want to talk about um, sales channels a little bit. And there's been, you know, I think there's been a, a lot of changes in how consumers view consumption during COVID. There's the, you know, Black Lives Matter uh, movement as well. So I like to say there's been a, you know, a bit of a, a rise in consciousness and certainly with all of the natural catastrophes or, or events that we've seen since the start of 2020, it's also opened our eyes even further to the issue at hand. Um, 
And we've heard from uh, uh, fashion houses and luxury designers um, who are uh, who basically made a commitment to no longer um, keep up with that overly busy schedule of you know seasons and fashion where you basically have a new collection coming out every few months and they've committed to slowing down on that cycle so what what does that look like for you um also understanding that these cycles or the cycle was also a um requirement from the the retail industry right with department stores or large retailers who expect that novelty again and again so they can push something new to their consumers and always create that traffic and, and that conversion. So how do you approach that with another tomorrow? And how do you think the industry overall needs to adapt from, from that standpoint? Yeah, that's such a great question. I mean, for, for us, um, we wanted to forge our own path in terms of the trajectory. And, you know, I'll say that we are predominantly a direct-to-consumer company, as I mentioned. That was a core part of the business model to really achieve that, you know, price equality uh, mm -hmm. intersection. Um, but we did launch uh, with Matches Fashion, and we did so because they were really on board from the beginning with doing something differently. And so I think that for us, um, it's funny, we almost got to model what the industry is trying to do at the outset by forging a completely different relationship with the retailer from, from the outset, from the start. Um, which was really good. Um, and also our, you know, our initial collection also re reflected this sort of seasonless approach in that Jane really designed for her idea of this woman's life for the entire year, you know, so we designed mm -hmm. like an entire year up front and we thought, okay, this is going to be the foundation and then we'll see what resonates, what really fits you know, this woman's core product needs, and then we'll build off of that. And so we really kind of have from the start, and we've maintained it, this kind of 80-20 rule of like 80% core, and then 20% can kind of evolve. And whether that's like expansion of category, or whether that's just you know a new colorway or a new silhouette, um, we've sort of been in this mode of, you know, foundational, long-lasting pieces um, from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I think the big issue for the industry is just whether you're making things that look new or whether you're making things that look the same, there's just way too much of it. I mean, I think that the industry has been oversupplied with product by mm -hmm. many multiples for a really long period of time. And that's going to be a problem. You know, I think changing the calendar doesn't solve that. I think it's a part right. of the solution because I think that it basically, it allows companies to start to do what's organically best for them and what's organically best from for their customer instead of being in this like produce for the sake of producing. So I think that will start to change. Um, but for any company that's accustomed to producing that much, it's going to be a big adjustment with very significant economic consequences and right. a real need to rethink revenue diversification, rethink business models. And I think, unfortunately, you know, in this right sizing process, the industry is, is, is going to shrink and it kind of has to. It's almost like an inevitable consequence. Right, right. And I think we're seeing... Um, I want to say the start of that also just by virtue of this 
uh, this change in a cycle that we've gone through as a result of the pandemic. How does that translate for you? Um, because you, you know, you launched a brand before COVID. Actually, when when did the brand come out exactly? What was your launch? January twenty eighth of twenty twenty. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we had a solid literally. <laughs> and I want to say that's almost it's a, both a blessing and a curse because it's almost like you answered this change in consumer mindset yeah. just before it happened, but you also put something new out there just as consumers were slowing down their, their spending. Um, so how did that affect you? And do you think that as a result of recent events, consumers are going to be more inclined to look for, you know, those ethical, sustainable um, brands like yours? Yeah, you know, I think that, um, you know, I'm actually, I'm super grateful that we launched when we did, because I, I really feel for those brands who had launches slated for later in the year. I think it's been really, really, really challenging. So I can, I do consider it um, a blessing. It might have been nice to maybe have launched maybe six months earlier, but you know, it was, it was, you know, honestly, it was good. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think for us, um, the beauty of being so new is that you're so nimble. So you don't have these major overhead commitments. You don't have these major production commitments. And so uh, we really had the ability to, and, and we had, didn't have any you know, major commitments with retailers in terms of like huge orders. We just had this right. one wholesale partner, which I think that that was where you know, people were really in a pickle because they had orders canceled, you know, serious financial yeah. consequences to that. So um, for us, we really were able to say, we're trying to solve two things, right? We're trying to solve the problem for this planet that this industry creates, and we're trying to solve this problem that this customer has. And so how do we just stay true to that and make decisions consistently on that basis? And um, when we looked ahead to this fall and, you know, the curse sort of, of, of luxury fashion is that it takes time. You know, these are still, you know, really like, uh, highly high craftsmanship um, items, so it take it takes time, and so you have to make decisions, you know, fairly far in advance. And so we were looking at this fall, and I love the you know the new pieces that we were planning to come out with, and I just said I can't imagine that our customer is going to need this. Does this really make sense? Um, and we just decided to say this, you know, to hell with it. Like, let's push this to 2021 and let's think about developing some things that really focus on our customers' core needs. And, you know, at the time we had no idea that we were still going to be in this spot right now. Right. Yeah. Um, we thought it was at least kind of a coin toss, right? And those are the types of decisions that I think are, they're really hard when you're making them. And then once they're made, you're just like, ah, okay, clarity, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's been a you know it's been a challenging year, but um, because we've been nimble and because we know what we're trying to solve for, we could keep coming back to that anchor and use that to make decisions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And right. I think in a weird way, the quality of our decision making process has gone up significantly. And I think in a few years time, and really already, we're going to look back at this and be grateful because I think crisis is so clarifying. That was what I experienced in finance during the financial crisis. It's just your priorities are crystal, crystal clear. 
And you're kind of bridging topics here, but you're you're um, talking about decision making, and that's a question I had for you. So, as a as a woman leader, how do you approach decision making? Are you and and I'm curious to coming from a finance background where everything is about numbers and being a lot more rational and projections. How do you make decisions now as a fashion entrepreneur? So, you know, I, I think that what what um, what the finance experience taught me, specifically actually coming up in a trading role, is that you're constantly inundated with information and um, you have to be able to sift through that and find the actual signal. And so I think that that's something that's been really helpful for me in terms of like getting the signal through the noise. So that's one piece. And I think you really have to trust your intuition. Mm-hmm. You know, that was one of the challenges I had when I first started being honest was I, you know, I did second guess myself. I said, you know, what the heck do I know about this, this industry to, to make me qualified to make X, Y, or Z decision. But I think you do have to trust your intuition. Um, I would say the part where I've really had to grow in my decision making process is Um, you know, finance is in many ways a fairly individual sport. And I was so used to making um, making decisions myself. Oh, yeah. And um, I've definitely learned uh, that not only is it really important for your team culture to bring other people into decisions, but it's also really important for the quality of the decisions. Right. <laughs> um, and so um, I, I, I've definitely, I would say it's been a combination of, You know, data, trusting intuition, um, and you know, bringing people into the hard questions, uh, even when it's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. If you could go back and do something differently in this entire process, what would it be? I think I would have built a board of advisors way, way, way earlier. Oh, uh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I definitely had a number of people who were incredibly helpful along the way, but um, I didn't formalize that until much later. And I'm so grateful for the advisors that we have um, that I should have just done it much sooner. And I I think part of the reason um, I didn't, if I'm really honest, is I think I was... um, still a little insecure about how little I knew. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, if I invite mm-hmm. all of these experts to the table, you know, they're going to find me out. Like, yeah, they're going to see like how little I know. Um, but I still don't know much of anything, right? And I, now I just stop caring, right? So, mm-hmm. so um, it's, I, I think that's really what I would, what I would do differently. Having gone through the past few months and obviously, you know, with with COVID, with the pandemic and all all, all of the related issues, it's been, I mean, already as an entrepreneur, um, I'm, you know, I'm sure you go through periods of insecurity and stress and anxiety and you you brought up a, a, a few specific issues. Uh, if we add COVID to that, when you get to that point of, you know, not seeing clearly, doubting yourself, I mean, we've all been there. What's one way that you are able to pull yourself out of it and, you know, try to see clearly, try to ground yourself so that you are able to make those better decisions for the business and for yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it comes from uh, you've got to be able to zoom out of the moment mm. because it's so easily to extrapolate um, information, both good or bad. Um, 
And I think that entrepreneurs definitely do it in both directions. There's super high highs and super low lows. Um, but I think that there, for me, it's been saying, okay, if it were five years from now and I'm looking back at this particular problem I'm facing, is this fatal? Like, does like a week of like really tough sales data, like, is that going to make or break the success of this company? Like, the world is not ending, you know? So I think that um, trying to, to take myself forward and look back has, is always really helpful in those circumstances. I think that um, the tool that has allowed me to do that is meditation. Um, mm. And so, you know, there are a lot of things that I've had to deprioritize in my life as an entrepreneur, but um, the one thing that I commit to steadfastly is meditation because it's just, it's my rock and it's the only thing that allows me to see outside of my own um, immediate angst when it happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great advice. And speaking of advice, what would you tell uh, maybe a young woman who is thinking about a career or starting her own business related to fashion, maybe sustainability, what would be your top tips for her? So I, I think that um, it always comes back to the customer. And mm -hmm. I think that there's, it's so attractive uh, to build things. And fashion is such an inspiring industry. Um, but I think that what's what makes a successful business is delivering something um, of value for your customer in a way that somebody else isn't currently solving. And whether your customer is an individual or whether it's you know a business to business solution and your customer is a business, I think it's really building your business around that core customer need and never letting go of that. Um, otherwise, you may build something that's beautiful and fun and interesting but it, it may not have the longevity that you hope for. And given how much time and energy and money <laughs> goes into creating a business, you want to make sure you have that alignment uh, from the start. And I would say to the extent that it's possible, um, taking those almost kind of like tech-based approaches of really kind of testing things in beta, you know, before you've even launched as much as possible, um, which isn't, which is a tough thing to do, you know, when something's not perfect. It's another thing I struggle with. Um, but I think that that is um, that's the advice that that I would certainly give. Good advice. Um, and in closing, I want to ask you my favorite question to ask guests on the show, and that is, what do you wish women would do more of? Build things. Um, and not just companies, um, you know, so much of the world that we live in, whether it's our political structures, whether it's um, our, you know, education structure or media um, or finance um, or companies um, was built without nearly enough input from women or leadership from women. And so you know, I say women get out there and build something, whether that's within your company, whether that's um, in government, whether that's in, you know, some other aspect of, you know, public service or through entrepreneurship. I think that women bring such a unique um, and multifaceted set of values and perspectives. Uh, and I say go for it. 
So we need we need a lot more female builders out there. We do, we do. I I join you in 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 that wish. Uh, thank you so much, Vanessa. It was great speaking with you today. I really appreciate hearing uh, your your point of view and wishing you the best of luck with the the future, the the tomorrow of another tomorrow. <laughs> Thank you so much. You've created an incredible community. I'm honored to be part of it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And as always, it makes a difference if you subscribe, uh, give us a review, give us some stars. Thank you to TD Bank Group Women Entrepreneurs for their support of The Brightness Female. You've got it in you to succeed. Let TD help guide you. Visit thebrightnessfemale.com slash podcast and click on a TD logo. I look forward to speaking to you in a week with a new guest on the show. Take care. Thank you.